again good evening to you. And let's turn tonight to Isaiah chapter 54 as we go through the Bible on Sunday nights, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight, you don't have a Bible, I'd sure like you to have a Bible tonight to follow along. So men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention. They'll come to you, give you a Bible, be marked to our passage that we're studying tonight. And please, if you don't own a Bible, take that one home as a gift from the Lord uh, this evening. In Isaiah chapter 54, we have a record of the uh, future peace of Israel. And as God speaks through the prophet Isaiah to the southern kingdom of Judah, we remember that they haven't even been taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And yet God sees all the way down through the ages that where they're going to one day be taken into captivity, they'll be there for 70 years. Ultimately, God will secure their release from the Babylonian captivity and a return to the land. And so he is so... The Bible says that our lives are as a tale that's been told. It's like there is no surprise. Every minute's a surprise for me. I don't know what's coming next. But not for God related to our lives. It's like he turns on Nickelodeon and he watches old uh, Andy Mayberry shows or something that you've seen a hundred times or Lucy or something. You say, I know everything about this episode. I know exactly how it ends. He knows that about our lives too. And he's going to keep every promise that he has given to us in our lives. And so he knows history in advance because he lives outside of time. And, and uh, so he speaks to them of a better day. Even before they're in their worst day, he gives them a promise, even before the Babylonian captivity. He said, single barren to Judah, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. The imagery here, it's brought out a little bit in the New Testament, is uh, referencing uh, Abram and, uh, Abraham and Sarah and her barrenness and the fact that she did not, wasn't able for a time to bear children and then ultimately she did against all odds. By the time uh, they had children, uh, Abraham was a hundred years old and she was ninety years old. It's a little past the old um, uh, timetable for both men and women and yet miraculously, even though the, the promise seemed like there was no way that it could be kept, God kept his promise. Once they would read this in the, at the time of the Babylonian captivity, they would look at it and say, there is no way God is going to be able to keep his promise to get us out of the strength of Babylon and back into the land. It's impossible. So he reminds them of how he had done the impossible with the father and mother, so to speak, of the nation, Abraham and Sarah, and that he would do the same thing with us. And so often, and maybe some of us even here tonight, where there is a situation that's going on in your life. There have been, a, there have been times, many times in my life, in the 30-plus years or however many, 35 years that I've been walking with the Lord, that I've just felt it's so sad, Lord, that here I am. I'm born into human history, and my life is going to be the first one that disproves one of your promises. You're way too late for stepping in and taking care of this one for me. I'm doomed. I think I'll write my memorial service out now and pick out, you know, what I want to have said there. And then, sure enough, God steps in and 
and fulfills his promises. And he will do that in your life. It's just a matter of holding on and watching how he does it. Never an issue of if, always an issue of when. And when they come back into the land, he says, Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. In other words, when they come back into the land, they're going to increase population-wise. They're going to fill the land. Don't worry about Israel being forced to give away land or land for peace or whatever, you know, the current the political climate of the world today, uh, one day, and, and all of this has a near fulfillment in the return of the Jews from the Babylonian captivity. But the far and fullest fulfillment will occur during the kingdom age when Christ returns at his second coming, establishes the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then Jerusalem and Israel will prosper as they never have before in, in uh, history. So he says, listen, you're not going to come in and measure. You're going to fill your house. There's going to be children. It's going to be a time of prosperity. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants shall inherit the nations and make the desolate uh, cities inhabited. So not only will you fill uh, Israel proper, but then your influence and all will then move into the surrounding nations and beyond. And, of course, we see, again, the far fulfillment of this when Christ reigns on the earth and the influence of uh, Israel then because of his presence there will stretch out indeed to uh, the entire world. He said, do not, be, do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for... Uh, you will forget the shame of your youth, t- talking about their long history of, of uh, wandering away from God and disobeying God, maybe uh, speaking about the season of the judges in their history, and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore, speaking of their Babyl- Babylonian captivity. So the day coming when they'll no longer be reproached or bearing the consequences of their sin. And here's the reason why. For your maker is your husband. And so God speaks uh, of himself in six different titles. He gives to himself here in verse 5. And the whole explanation for this glorious future uh, of the Jewish people and the land of Israel is because of him. He is their maker and their husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. Uh, and, and so uh, God is going to claim them once again uh, when nobody would claim them. Like a wife that has been unfaithful to her husband, now she spent all of her youth, now she's older and speaking in the ancient world and, and all, and that kind of a woman had very little chance of ever remarrying or anyone taking an interest in them at all. And so God speaks in these kind of terms spiritually. They, she had wasted so much of her youth, so much of her resources, 
uh, so much of her life and her vitality and sin and at a time where physically in the physical realm a husband might say ah fooey with you I'm gonna go on in another chapter in my life uh, God does what uh, a mere human being wouldn't do and says here you are when uh, is after a long season of spiritual adultery and when nobody would want you I will take you back and wonderful gracious words of the Lord and uh, and so says your Lord for a mere moment I have forsaken you but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment. And so all of the chastening and specifically the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, God says it's just for a moment. And boy, 70 years uh, seems like a long time to me. Uh, but in the grand scheme of God's dealings with his people, it was just for a moment. And it was necessary because of their sin. God wasn't eager to chasten them. Uh, but... He was eager for what the chastening would produce and then allow him to do what's recorded here at the end of verse 8. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Aren't you glad that the Lord loves happy endings? He's always working toward a happy ending uh, in our lives. Sometimes it can be rough because we're working toward a bad ending, but we think it's toward a happy ending. And it's rebellion against God or sin or willful disobedience. God says there's no happy ending there. So I'm willing to take you in behind the woodshed and uh, give you a, a whipping for 70 years so that we can really have a happy ending here. God is always working toward that end. He said, for this is the water, uh, this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. And so he's saying, again with biblical imagery, God loves the Bible, by the way. And he loves to speak of truth in a way that reinforces their understanding of the Bible and, and, uh, and draws on their knowledge of the Bible. So he is saying, in essence, as surely as the floodwaters at the time of Noah receded to then give way to a fresh start and all, even though it looked like when Noah was on the boat that these waters will never recede, they felt in Babylon ultimately that this chastening will never end. Uh, God's promises will never come true for us. We've put ourselves in the doghouse way too deep. And the Lord said, no, it's going to happen. As surely as that flood receded, uh, so too my promises are going to uh, surface, and so to speak, and, and uh, become uh, your future portion. He said, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. So it sounds something like uh, your house, right? And they lay a foundation here with all of these stones and everything. He's describing the future of Jerusalem. Again, they would be reading this in Babylon. Jerusalem is a ruin. It's been destroyed. And and their heart was broken over it. And God begins to speak uh, of the fact that Jerusalem will one day have a physical beauty that will be beyond description. And that's what he's speaking of, the most precious gems and stones that are in existence today. You go to Jerusalem today, 
and you look at it and you say, wow, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy. It is a beautiful city, and it's a golden city because of the stone that all of the buildings are clad with. And yet the Bible teaches that uh, one day, and, and this again looks down through history to the time where Jesus will be ruling in Jerusalem during the thousand-year reign of Christ, but then ultimately this old Jerusalem that's in the world is going to give way to uh, new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Revelation describes the new Jerusalem and uh, in these very, very terms. And so a great future for Jerusalem and God is prophesying even beyond their return from the Babylonian captivity. This whole chapter has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. In this uh, return then and speaking again of the kingdom age, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. Uh, by the way, can I go with my child to that Bible study? Now imagine uh, Bible t- studies and teaching and and uh, learning right and wrong and righteousness being taught by Jesus himself during the kingdom age. You know, sometimes we think He's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem, and so it's going to be a lot of meetings, and like he's going to have these mallets to call to order, and and it's going to be a lot of edicts and meetings and all of the way that, you know, power and politics and ruling operates here today. But I don't think that's going to be the case. I don't think he wants to rule and reign to say, boy, I love meetings, and I can't wait to go to the next meeting and uh, discuss a bunch of things that are never going to happen. Is interesting, G. Campbell Morgan, one of the great preachers of the last century and a great Bible teacher, and he said, I would rather teach a hundred uh, Bible studies than to go to one deacon's meeting, one board meeting. He hated meetings, and uh, but he loved to minister the Word. And so Jesus is going to be about people. He's going to be about speaking about what do we want him, hold up in some, you know, uh, oak paneled room and nobody can get to him but a few people. No, he's going to, he's going to be very, very available and doing what's most important and that is, uh, teaching people. The only thing that's eternal in this world is, uh, people and God's Word. And so, he's not going to pour all that time. It's going to, he's going to be about people. And, uh, great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. And so that whole reign will be marked by righteousness. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and uh, from terror, for it shall not come near you. So no oppression of the Jewish people or any people during that time. No terror, no fear. It's going to be a wonderful age. Just think about that. Think about if we had as human beings in the whole world... We had like a 24, let's not make it 24, let's not be stingy about it. Let's make it 48 hours because it takes us 24 hours to just realize it's happened. But 48 hour um, uh, break from fear, uh, from the fear of assault, the fear of our home being broken into, the fear of economic collapse, the fear of losing my job, the fear related to marriage or child uh, rearing in the culture, whatever it might be. And imagine, I mean, we can't even imagine it. The, the, again, it'd take us 24 hours to figure out the scope of the weight that had been lifted off of our shoulders. And yet that's going to be the moral, the spiritual, the emotional, the mental atmosphere of the kingdom age. It's going to be wonderful. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because 
uh, of me, and whoever assembles against you, against Israel, shall fall for your sake. The Lord is going to protect uh, the Jews both near and far. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire. I'm, I created the person who knows how to make weapons and who brings forth an instrument, and in speaking of weapons, for his work. And I have created the spoiler to destroy those who know how to use the weapons. And yet he said, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So a glorious future coming uh, for Israel, for Jerusalem, and uh, um, and. It's great to, to know this just in the processing of the news that we see every day. Israel is not going to be wiped out. They're not going to be destroyed. And uh, it's interesting when you go into um, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, which talks about an end times invasion by Gog, Magog, uh, uh, speaking of uh, the region above the Caucasus Mountains, which is modern-day Russia, aligning with a bunch of nations in the Middle East, all of which are... Uh, Islam, Muslim-dominated uh, nations, and then them joining in a confederation to then destroy uh, Israel. God rises up supernaturally, protects Israel from that particular uh, uh, attack, and um, and so the Lord is going to protect them all the way through. They will have some problems during the Great Tribulation period, no doubt about that. But again, that's to produce a happy ending. Uh, in terms of getting them to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. As we come now to chapter 55, we have this uh, wonderful, wonderful chapter full of so many treasures, really, in the Old Testament, so many blessed passages. And here we have God's invitation to the whole world to come and partake of a great banquet. Now, remember God is speaking to... Uh, people at a time in history where it wasn't, you know, for five bucks they could go down and eat as much from McDonald's as they could and go home stuffed. Uh, to have a, a beef patty was something that maybe even the upper middle class might be able to eat meat once a week. The poor forget about it. So sometimes we look at this as kind of Americans with the access to food that we have and all, and uh, very proud of the fact that so much of it comes out of the Central Valley, by the way. And uh, But to look at this and we think, oh, yes, you know, water and milk and wine and blah, blah, blah. But to put ourselves in the shoes of the person who would scrape by and hope for enough carbohydrates, enough bread to get by for another day. This was an invitation to a great, great banquet. And uh, this physical banquet that's described here is representative of an invitation by God to the whole world to a spiritual banquet, to put our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and to come to uh, enjoy the incredible uh, spiritual feast that then unfolds. Isaiah writes, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, buy wine and milk without money. In other words, you're not going to have to pay for it. It'll be given to you and without price. And why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself 
in abundance. And so, again, this beautiful picture of salvation that's found in Jesus. You want to say, well, what's a... <clears throat> What's on the menu of the spiritual feast that is ours because of our faith in Christ? No better place than to go to Ephesians chapter 1. You ever go online and, and go, you're thinking about maybe going to a restaurant and you pull up the menu, you know, online to see what they've got? Do they have like a Bronto burger or a pterodactyl wings or something like that that you could order? And, uh, and so the same thing. Think of Ephesians chapter 1 as this great spiritual menu, all of which is ours because of Christ, as, as uh, Paul wrote there concerning the fact that blessed be God the Father and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he begins to list all of those blessings in Ephesians. So the spiritual banquet is spread here. He gives the invitation to the feast to, to come. The feast that's described is very, very rich, very satisfying. I mean, in the ancient world, your mouth would have watered. Uh, reading about this, you say, well, what's the deal about come to the waters? You're talking about a part of the world where uh, water is life. To have an abundance of water was uh, no small thing. I think we're beginning to appreciate water in the same kind of uh, measure, aren't we? He talks then about wine and milk and uh, bread, and all of this is a picture of the salvation that Jesus has given to us. This is a great feast that's being described here, and Jesus has provided us with so great a salvation in the words of the writer of the book of Hebrews. Jesus himself spoke and said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. All here pictured in this beautiful passage. And Jesus, even in the New Testament, he likened himself to bread and to water and his offer of salvation to mankind. Uh, Jesus said to the woman at the well, you remember in John chapter 4, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And John chapter 6, he de described himself as bread, this great spiritual feast, and using physical terms to describe what he would supply to us uh, in a spiritual way. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true, true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who uh, believes in me shall never thirst. Again, Jesus is even likened. His word is uh, the word of God likened to milk. As Peter uh, wrote in his first epistle, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And so the imagery throughout all of the Bible. We notice in verse 1 that everyone is invited, Jew and Gentile alike. John the baptizer said concerning Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the Jews. That's not what he said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the whole world. 
And Jesus, uh, here's this invitation to come to the feast. Jesus gave the same kind of invitation to the spiritual feast that's found uh, in him. He said, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, all that my Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Significant, too, to notice that this feast that's offered by God, this physical feast, symbolic of a spiritual feast, it's provided freely to us from God uh, because God has paid uh, the bill in full, so to speak, for uh, the meal. And so normally a person would have to work months and months to be able to, as a special thing, be able to enjoy a feast like described here in this passage and... Um, and uh, would be out of reach for most most people and all. Jesus, it's interesting when we take the imagery and apply it to our salvation on the cross as we come into kind of Passion Week related to him, even as Good Friday is looming here, coming up this Friday, on the cross he said, it is finished. And so he said, uh, to telestai, that word, it's all in one word, to telestai is a single word, it is finished, finished. And it means paid in full. And so Jesus said the payment that was required for the forgiveness of our sins to give us access to the greatness of this feast has been paid in full, all consistent with the beauty of this feast uh, that is uh, described. It's offered to everyone. Uh, or those who have no money, who could never afford the salvation on their own. He doesn't ask us to bring anything to him just to bring our sin and our need, and uh, he will save us on the basis of his grace and not on the basis of our works in any way. Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and $25 now. For grace you, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. All that's required to be saved is to recognize the spiritual thirst that I have and bring it to Jesus, and then everything else gets uh, taken care of. And so in the same way that this feast that he describes here would take care of any uh, physical uh, hunger or appetite that we would have, it would satisfy any physical appetite, Faith in Jesus brings salvation to our spiritual appetites and such satisfaction that's only found in Him. I tell you, I'm satisfied in Him, spiritually, and always, but spiritually we're talking here. I'm not like, you know, picking up every night saying, well, you know, I, I kind of like Jesus, but, you know, I'm wondering if there's a better offer out there. And, you know, take checking out a book on comparative religions or something else. No, once you come to know the Lord, really know the Lord, I mean, you are satisfied and you know there's no looking anyplace else. You can't get a better meal than the one that is uh, found in him. And so this invitation to this feast and for everyone uh, to come and to partake in it. And he said, incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Those that would uh, come to this feast, God says, I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. Even as we put our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we enter into a new covenant as Jesus spoke when he instituted uh, the Lord's Supper. And God goes on then to declare 
um, the sure, uh, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him, that is, David is a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and da- nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And so God gave David promises that he would not only um, inhabit and be the king over Israel, but God worked through David that he even became, his influence went far beyond Israel into the nations all around uh, uh, Israel. And so God is saying that just as he had done with David uh, in Israel and in the nations beyond, that Jesus one day will be the world's leader, he will be the world's commander, and uh, he'll be the one that the nations run to in the kingdom age. And we, by the way, will rule and reign with him. That's interesting, isn't it? that he rules from Jerusalem, but we are his servants. And so, um, I don't know, maybe uh, some of us will be, have, um, you know, some place in the world. You're going to rule some place in the world with him. He's going to say to you, now listen, here's what I want happening in this particular area, and you have oversight of it, and you say, got it, I'm going to take care of that, and going to bless the people, and going to keep things the way that you want them to be, and every one of us as Christians will be ruling and reigning uh, with him, and a part of his influence for good in the whole uh, world. He then said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. And so this invitation for the feast, this invitation for salvation, it's uh, got a, a time. You get, we check, get the milk and we check it before we get it. And uh, I never take the front carton in the store. So it says like the 17th on it. And I think to myself, there's got to be like a 19th behind it. I'll take six bottles or cartons out before I say, oh, they're all 17. Okay. Sorry about the mess I made here. Please, can somebody come and clean? So there's an expiration on the offer, and the expiration is it's only open to us as long as we're alive. And once we die, we no longer have an opportunity to receive this gift of salvation. At that point, our eternities are set. And so he calls upon uh, everyone to take the offer that God gives in this way uh, because today is the only day that we have, that we know that we have. And if you're not saved tonight, you ought to give your life to the Lord because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. And so seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near, while we still have access to him and to his salvation, let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. In other words, anyone can come and receive salvation no matter how great their sin might be, no matter how unrighteous that a, a, a man has been in his thoughts, in his life, anyway. God is eager to have mercy on us, to abundantly pardon us, and uh, take away our sin. And so he's saying it's absolutely no risk, it's sure, come to me. And salvation and f- faith in Christ is sure, there's no risk. It's, uh, it's done the moment that we uh, trust in him. And then the Lord uh, moves on to declare uh, in verse 8, 
He said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the greatness of these promises that God was giving to the children of Israel here, when they read them in the Babylonian captivity, it would have been seemed just staggering to them that God was ever going to do such a thing for them. And so this was higher than anything they could dream up. This was higher than any thought that they could have. This was higher than any plan or any way that they could come up with. But God reassured them that his word was going to be uh, accomplished. And so God declares that his thoughts and his ways are infinitely superior to our own, even our very best uh, thoughts. Now, when you and I get into a pickle and we get into a difficult situation or a trial or some kind of uh, problem that we're uh, in the middle of, always we will have a thought in that situation of um, how to resolve this. Uh, This is how it ought to be resolved. If we just move X over here and Y over here and I make this phone call and then I twist this guy's arm over here and I think if all of that lines up, then I think this problem can go away. So we all have a thought and we all have our ways in terms of trying to solve the problems or situations uh, within, uh, within our lives. And so what we think is best The interesting thing is, while we're looking at our problem and our situation and coming up with our own ideas, God looks, he's our father, God looks at that same situation and he comes up with his own ways. And he has his own thoughts about that. And maybe you haven't noticed that sometimes there's a conflict between your thoughts about how this ought to go and be taken care of and your way as opposed to his way for how this all ends up getting resolved. And so when his thoughts and his ways run contrary to ours, it's important that we remember that his ways and his thoughts are not like just slightly superior to ours, but his ways and his thoughts are as high as the heavens are above the earth superior to ours. Now, I don't know how that high that is. Ha, 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 ha. I don't know how high that is, but that's a very big gap between my best plan, my best solution, and God's best plan and His solution. And so when God says no to some request or some idea or some thought of, of ours, it's only because He has something far better in mind. And it's important for us to know that. I have never, ever known. I've walked with the Lord for 35 years. I know some things and uh, in in the course of those years, and I can only speak from my own experience, but it bears witness to the Word of God here. I have never known, not one single time. You think, okay, he's walked with the Lord for 35 years. If he said, listen, God has been, he's done this, and I found this to be true except for six times. And let me tell you the six times I was smarter than God. As God is my witness, in 35 years, I have never known him to say no to some request or some thing that I have asked of him without it being revealed ultimately. And sometimes that takes years that what he was up to was something far better, 
And that's the truth about my life. And I know it's the truth about your life. And it's important to be reminded of that. I think of one of the greatest sayings I ever heard in this regard. Somebody wrote this. He said, God, nothing does nor suffers to be done. But what thou wouldest thyself do, couldst thou see the end of all he does as well as he. Feel like you're in that Bose commercial? What in the world? How many wouldest and couldest and thouest was in that quote? Or whatever the speaker commercial was. Let me read it to you again. God nothing does nor suffers to be done. But what thou wouldest thyself do, couldst thou see the end of all he does as well as he. And it's the truth. And I have an old friend who was instrumental in my life, and now he's gone to heaven. And he restated that saying this way. And I think you'll like it just as much. He said, God answers all my prayers the same way I would answer them if I had his wisdom, power, and love. And that's the truth of it. But there has to be that consciousness within our life, and the Holy Spirit is producing it within us. And that is that the most important thing about how things work out in our lives is not how easy they are for me in the physical realm, but what they do in the spiritual realm, what they do for me in my relationship with God. The Bible says that the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. So people, they come to me just like they come to you all the time. They say, how are you doing? Ah, complicated question. Great. The outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. And if we measure the superiority of ways and thoughts in terms of what is this making me into in the inner man, the me that is going to outlive this life and move into heaven one day, well, things are very, very good. And God is working in a way where clearly his thoughts and his ways are infinitely higher than my own. He then goes on to declare, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and does not return there, but water the earth and make it bud and f- make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so that my, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And so God speaks to them and to us about the sureness, the absolute trustworthiness of his promises, that he will keep every promise he has made to us in his word. I've never known him to break a promise in my life either. Looked iffy, looked iffy a time or two, but I've never known him to break a promise. The metaphor that he uses here is very, very significant. And so he's saying that as surely as this whole divinely... uh, designed and created rain cycle operates. It leads to the watering of the earth, to causing plants then to bud and to grow, to then providing seed for the farmers to sow, to then providing a crop that feeds hungry people. Uh, All of that in the physical realm, he declares here that God's Word sets off a whole series of events 
in the moral and the spiritual and the physical realm that will not stop until his promise, his truth comes to pass. God is saying that his word is irresistible. Isn't it interesting? We're talking now about robots and all these things that are right around the corner. I've got my order in for a couple. But I don't know how much I'm going to see of that in my lifetime. But for many of you in this room, you're going to probably own a robot or two. It's going to be all around you. I mean, life is moving very, very fast if the Lord uh, tarries. And so how fast everything is moving and technologically and all. But we cannot control the weather. You know how I know that? Because we got half the rain we need in California this year and less than half in many parts of the state. We are still at the mercy of nature and weather. And so we cannot make it rain and we cannot make the rain stop when it starts and we can't stop a flood when it starts. And so God's word, his promises, they're irresistible. Man can no more control that or overthrow that or uh, overturn a promise of God toward you uh, then they can stand in the middle of the flooding of the Russian River and stop it. It just won't happen. And so God's pr- word, his promises, it's irresistible and it is going to come to pass. And so God stands behind his promises and it's important for us to remind ourselves. And remember, as we declare God's word to other people that it will never disappoint. This promise I know that I'm giving to this person comes from God's word. It is specifically for the situation that they're in. This word is going to have the final say in their life. They not, may not believe it at the moment because they're so caught in what they're in the middle of. But you can walk away saying, I have not only not done no harm to this person by giving them that promise, but one day they'll see that promise come to pass within uh, uh, their life. It's going, to, uh, it's going to come true. God is going to make sure of it. Now, when water comes into contact with the earth, and uh, I think it's kind of sometimes these barren parts of the world, Israel in the south has a desert just like California does, and uh, it looks so dry and it looks so barren for so much of the year. And then the rains come and the water falls on that. And then all of a sudden, all of these flowers, all of this vegetation, all of this beauty just explodes from this soil that looks so barren and it looks so dry. The interesting thing is there's so much that's built into the soil that then gets released When water comes into contact with that soil, all it needs is some water. And when the water is applied through rain, it all springs forth into life. The flowers and the grasses and the crops. But the same thing is true, Isaiah is here, of the human life. There is so much that is built into our lives as human beings by God that will never come forth apart from the Word of God being applied to our lives. And you think about how many people live their lives independent of the Word of God and how much they miss because we've been made to be watered and to be nourished by the Word of God. It's the only thing that can bring out of our lives the things that it does bring uh, out of our lives and how it 
takes in life and moves it from being this comparatively dry and barren thing into something that's prosperous and alive, again, spiritually and emotionally and mentally and physically. That is what the Word of God does within our lives. And so God closes up this chapter and uh, verse 12 And he speaks about all of the blessings that will come forth to those that take him up on his offer of salvation to partake of this feast. And for you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth in the singing before you. Isn't it interesting that when you become a Christian, it's fascinating how the whole world changes. The blues are blue or the greens are green or it seems like the trees are more beautiful than I've ever seen them before. No one's ever disappointed for having become uh, a Christian uh, because of what happens, the abundance of what we're led into. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Maybe you've seen them do that in your backyard. Sometimes they do it at three in the morning and you can't. In other words, it's going to be, you're going to be able to commune with the fullness of uh, even nature as a result of now being born again and indwelt by God. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name and for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And so uh, talking about how different life will be, the dramatic change that salvation uh, brings to our lives. In chapter 56... God continues to speak about the, uh, this whole idea of, of people coming to know him. He says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. And so in extending the invitation here, God is speaking about how he loves people, he wants to save people, but that to the Lord holiness is important, justice is important, righteousness is important uh, in his people. And so in extending this invitation of salvation and righteousness to the Gentile world, God is not declaring that his word or his commandments are now to be compromised in order to accommodate all of the sin and the uh, pagan practices of the Gentile world, that when we come to God for salvation, we must come on his terms. And so the importance of holiness, distinctiveness in the Christian life, I think it doesn't do us any harm to read a passage from the New Testament in this regard and uh, spoken by Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. He said of us, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And so let your, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And that occurs as we simply obey God's word in the power of the Holy Spirit. Our lives become distinctive as a result. And so when the Holy Spirit is working in a person's life, 
to bring that person to God, that person isn't going to come to God and ask God to accommodate their sin. Listen, I want to take all of this sin and bring it into my new Christian life, and I want to live this Christian life on my own terms. The Holy Spirit's not working in that kind of a situation. And God says, no, that's not the way this works, and that's not the way that I um, uh, save people. And so he emphasizes, as he's going to emphasize grace in just a moment, that his grace is, is never means that there is a neglect of his concern for holiness and that we as his people be distinctive uh, in the world in terms of righteousness and justice. He said, do not let the... Uh, son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speaks, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from uh, his people, nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. And so God speaks to the Jews, and uh, God speaks to the Jew, uh, Jews of his attitude toward the Gentiles, uh, that, the, uh, that God is interested in saving the Jews, but also wants to save the Gentiles. And when these people come in, out of all of their races and all of their cultures and all of their nations and all of their backgrounds and all of their pagan practices, when they're willing to accept verses 1 and 2, come to God on his terms, that they are to be able to come into uh, Judaism as it was in the Old Testament, certainly Christianity in the New Testament, and not carry any stigma, no sense that they're second-class citizens or anything like that, which is what uh, the the uh, Gentile converts into Judaism were feeling. And so God then goes on to speak about how he views everyone who comes uh, to know him, including the eunuchs and including uh, the Gentiles. And we looked at all of this this morning. And so he said, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. In other words, they're serious about God. And they choose what pleases me and they hold fast my covenant. They love me. They're the real deal. Even to them I will give uh, I will give them my house. I'll give them access to my presence in the temple. And within my walls, speaking of Jerusalem, a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I'll make them a part of my family, God says. I will give them an everlasting name. In other words, uh, the, uh, give them uh, to become a part of my family forever and ever, talking about everlasting life and everlasting relationship with them that they shall not be cut off. I want them to have confidence of my love for them and the relationship that I, that they have with me will be an eternal one. And also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbaths and holds fast my covenant. And again, God is saying, listen, I'm not telling you to accommodate the paganism of the world within Judaism here, but even within the church in this culture. He's saying, but when people come to me on my terms and they really are born again, they're the real deal. They are to be received and be made a part of my family. And they should feel that sense of, of welcome and, and acceptance. And he said, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. I'm going to give them joy in the temple. They come to worship me at the temple, lift up their prayers and their worship to me. I'm going to inhabit that as much as I would inhabit the praises of anyone. I'm going to make their experience at the temple, at church, at 
a joyful one. They're going to uh, be blessed in it. I'm going to make sure that they are. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. I will accept all of their worship. It will please me, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. In other words, he's speaking here to specifically to the Jewish religious leaders in the Jewish nation. And he's kind of saying, uh, you've been outcasts a few times. If my memory serves me right in terms of your history, uh, you don't have any bragging rights. If we want to pull out the record and talk about how the, the, the periods of time in your history where you outsend the pagans against a greater light that they never have. And now when the pagans get saved, you're going to make them feel like they can never attain to the relationship with God that you have? I mean, God has just said, no, that's not, that's not how it works. I've saved you. I've been good to you on the basis of grace. And I'm not going to be stingy about it. I'm going to extend it to the Gentiles as well. Yet I shall gather to him others beside those who are gathered to him. And then God goes on to speak a a denunciation of uh, Israel's leaders who were corrupt at the time. Uh, Their leaders were the principal cause for the nation ultimately uh, going into captivity. The people followed the leaders. They were responsible for it, but leaders have a greater responsibility before the Lord. And so he rebukes them. Probably these leaders are both spiritual and political. He said, all you beasts of the field, speaking of the Gentile nations, probably specifically of Babylon, come to devour, come and take uh, my people into captivity, all you beasts of the forest. Then he describes the watchman who ought to have protected Judah from this. He said that his watchmen are blind. Is that like an oxymoron? How good is a blind watchman? Can you be a blind watchman? I'm not making fun of a person that's blind. But a blind watchman is of absolutely no use uh, at all, and that's what they were. They were absolutely uh, blind in, into the danger that was was going on. They were to be keeping an eye on all it was that was uh, happening around them, and uh, they weren't being faithful to do that. And so the the watchman that was blind. And then he goes on and he talks about they are all ignorant, and so ignorant of heart and ignorant of God's heart and of God's word. He refers them to them as all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, bar- dogs that won't bark. Now, in the ancient world, uh, dogs were your security system. They were the ADT or whoever the security systems are around in the ancient world. We're not talking about little lap dogs, you know, where if you um, pet them, you can break their back or something like that. We're talking about some... We're talking about real dogs. I mean, those are real dogs too. I'm not putting them down. But uh, so you got a dog like that. You got to feed a dog like that. You got to take care of a dog like that. All you ask of the dog is that when somebody comes to the house to rob us of everything, would you mind barking? And if that bar, if that dog is like a lab, you know, just licks their hands and everything while they're walking away with the TV and the sofa and the dining room set and everything, and that's kind of what the, these leaders were. Uh, they didn't, you know, step up and warn the people. Trouble is coming, you know. It's not not just enough to watch, but then you've got to see what is is happening in the spiritual realm and then 
warn related uh, to it. And a good leader will watch and he will warn, but they didn't do that. They're sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. And so these leaders, they like sleep more than looking out for the people. They're greedy dogs, which never have enough. They use their positions to enrich themselves rather than looking out uh, for people. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. And it's just in the Hebrew, it's just basically saying they're just dumb. They're just dumb, and uh, in 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 terms of uh, what they, they're, how they're handling their responsibility, they all look to their own ways. Everyone for his own gain from his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today, and much more abundant. And so uh, they were likened to these drunken shepherds who assume that every day is going to get better. It's all going to be the same. There's no difficulty coming in the future when, in fact, disaster was right around the corner and they kept themselves uh, inebriated and and uh, under the influence of everything but God. And ultimately, it produced this uh, this great overthrow of the nation. Well, we'll stop there tonight. And we'll pick up in chapter 57. Not next Sunday night. Next Sunday night we'll have a special evening service. It'll be about an hour long of worship and a, um, a resurrection Sunday evening meditation. Just a nice way to kind of close out the week of Good Friday and, and resurrection Sunday morning and a time to just before we leave the glory of the weekend and all that it represents to us as Christians to come together one more time and give the Lord our praise and to meditate upon the greatness of what he's done for us in Christ. And so we'll look to pick up in chapter 57 then the week after that. Let's stand together and have the worship team come forward. And let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your ways. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for your wisdom, Lord. And nowhere is the greatness of your wisdom and thoughts more demonstrated than in the way of salvation. And Lord, we acknowledge tonight as we open up your wonderful book and as we study how it is that we can be forgiven and we can be saved by putting our faith in Jesus and, and all that you reveal to us about how that allows you to be just and the justifier of our faith. We have this strong sense that we are just scratching the surface of our understanding of how marvelous and majestic and unspeakably wonderful this salvation is how big it is and going out in all directions, how beautiful it is under the microscope and through the telescope, Lord. And we thank you that you have told us in your New Testament that we will spend all of eternity searching out the greatness of your grace, studying it and being brought into a greater awe than we even know today. Thank you for the feast that you have invited us to partake of. And thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit that has brought us into salvation. 
And we want you to know, Lord, that we are satisfied and we are blessed and we are thankful. And we thank you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.